your hymnal for your Bible and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 24. Those times where we rely upon God to hide us in the cleft of the rock, where we lean upon Him when we cannot lean upon ourselves. It is one such time that we are going to read about this evening. Certainly, we're going to cover a prophecy. All throughout the book of Ezekiel, we have seen prophecies, and we have seen throughout those prophecies that God has verified and validated those prophecies through the ministry of the prophet himself that the prophet would become a picture, a manifestation of the message from the prophet. And this evening will be no different. On our mornings, during our morning sermons recently, we have spent a great deal of time devoted to the principle that we as believers in Jesus Christ are God's, both body and soul. This evening, or this morning, we, we approach that again, recognizing that God is 100% sovereign over our lives, and if we do things uh, with that understanding, with that as the foundation, we would be much benefited, and it would help us to be able to obey our parents, to be able to submit ourselves to our bosses, to be able to uh, even submit ourselves to our government as we understand what God has ordained for us and the commands that He has given unto us. This concept of God owning us is easy enough to understand in theory, is it not? We've been redeemed by God. Thank you, Sarah. We've been redeemed by God and thus are God's by right and by purchase. It's a fairly easy concept to understand as believers. But how far does this concept really extend? How far does it extend in our hearts? If you were to have a Job moment, or a Job day, or a Job month, or a Job year, where you lost nearly everything that you held dear, would you still vindicate God's right to you in every way? That's the question we're going to ponder this evening from Ezekiel chapter 24 as we consider the degree to which we are yielded to God and the degree to which that which we own and that which we have and that which we hold dear is yielded to God. Ezekiel 24 will begin with yet another prophecy, yet another denunciation of the nation of Israel, yet another call for judgment. Notice what God says as He begins in verse 1. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying... So we find ourselves now in the tenth day of the tenth month of the ninth year of Jehoiachim's captivity and Ezekiel's captivity. This would have been about four and a half years, almost five years after Ezekiel began his ministry as a prophet. His ministry began in 592 B.C., In the fifth year, now we are in 588 B.C., it's approximately two years now before the temple would be destroyed. In verse 2, the Scriptures say this, Son of man, write thee the name of the day, even of this same day. The king of Babylon set himself against Jerusalem this same day. For 
21 some odd chapters now, God has been promising to Israel and to Jerusalem that God would judge them if they do not repent. And the way that He promised to judge them, as we recall, was through Babylon. And as God is speaking to Ezekiel on this, the 10th day of the 10th month of the 9th year, God basically tells Ezekiel, mark this day on your calendar. Put a big red X through this day. Circle it really big. Because this day, on this day, the king of Babylon has, it has entered into his mind that he is going to destroy Jerusalem. That he is going to siege Jerusalem. He's had enough with their rebellion. He's had enough with their conspiracy. He's had enough with their disobedience. That was the day that King Nebuchadnezzar said, I am going to go and I am going to take care of Jerusalem once and for all. He determined war against Jerusalem. It was settled in his mind. The city would be destroyed. This was the point of no return for the nation. Where all of Ezekiel's promises for the past four and a half, almost five years, would begin to come to pass. And so God tells Ezekiel in verse 3, Utter a parable unto the rebellious house and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Set on a pot, set it on, and also pour water into it. So, Ezekiel was now going to do another object lesson, another parable, another way by which Israel can physically see what God is going to do to them. To show them the condition in which they were spiraling down into. And so he said this, verse 3, set a pot, set it on, and pour water into it. So take a pot, put it over a fire, pour water into that pot. And then he says in verse 4, Gather the pieces thereof unto it, even every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice bones. Take the choice of the flock and burn, it all, burn also the bones under it and make it boil well and let them seethe the bones of it therein. So God says, take a pot, put it over a fire, pour a bunch of water into it, and then take an animal, chop it up into pieces, take it bones, blood, everything, and just toss it into the pot and let it seethe. Let it boil. Boil it really good. That's the sign. That's the symbol. Those of you who are cooks among us know exactly what will happen when you boil meat and bones in water. On the top of that water, there's going to come a film. Scum, if you will. A mixture of kind of nasty stuff. That, that scum is a really good word for that. That's going to boil up to the top as you boil that meat and those bones and the blood <clears throat> in this pot. And as everyone was looking at Ezekiel boiling these bones and this meat and this blood in this pot, the message was this, verse 6, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is therein and whose scum is not gone out of it. Bring it out piece by piece. Let no lot fall upon it. So God says, this is you, Jerusalem. This pot is you. Your meat, your bones, your blood, your scum. It's all there. You haven't removed it. You haven't cleaned it. You are a nasty pot. Now God says, remove all of this. Remove everything from the pot. He says in verse 7, For her blood is in the midst of her. She set it upon the top of a rock. She poured it not upon the ground to cover it with dust. So this scum that was in this pot is now staying in the pot. You're not pouring it out to clean the pot. You're allowing the scum to build up around the pot. 
to stay in the pot. He says you're kind of a, a pot that's lost everything but its scum. It's not a very nice thing to say. But this is, this is it. This is how God is likening Jerusalem. He says her blood is set in her, verse 7. She is set on the top of a rock. Verse 8, that it might cause fury to come. So rather than removing the scum, the pot elevated the scum, setting it as the best that the pot had to offer. And so God says, this is intentional provocation. You are intentionally provoking me. They've done the exact thing that warrants the judgment of God. And they refuse to do anything different. And so he says in verse 8, I have set her blood upon the top of a rock that it should not be covered. I'm not going to cover the scum. I'm not going to cover the blood. I'm not going to cover these things. I'm going to make it clear. So what does he say in verse 9? He says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I will even make the pile for fire great. What is God to do with this scummy pot? Well, what do you do when you have a scummy pot? My wife soaks it. She soaks it like crazy. She soaks it. She puts dish detergent in it. She puts anything she can in it to get it to, to, to loosen up when, when that pot has all the encrusted nasty stuff on it. Well, God had another idea. God had another way of cleaning this pot. He says, make that fire really great. He says, I'm going to make the pile great. God's reaction to the wickedness of the city would be decisive. Not swift, but decisive. For many, many years, God has been warning the city to repent. They have not done so. He's been very long-suffering, very merciful. They've rejected His mercy. So He'll take the pot, He'll heat a great fire, and He'll burn it. He'll burn the pot and the contents of the pot. The meat pictured in verse 10 is probably, and the bones, is probably the inhabitants of Jerusalem who will understand from several other prophecies that they are going to be facing the judgment of God. But God specifically focuses in on the pot here, the pot being the city of Jerusalem. The city itself would be judged, not just the people within the city. It would need to be purged, and this is what God says in verse 11. Set the empty pot upon the coals, that the brass of it may be hot, it and may burn, and the filthiness of it may be molten in it, that the scum of it may be consumed. So God says, take this pot and make it so hot that all the filthiness is, is melted, is melted off the pot and is consumed. Burn the scum off this pot. He's going to empty this pot. He's going to burn this pot. And in verse 12, he describes the scum being burned off as the lies of Jerusalem. The great scum that went out of her. The very thing able to fix her is intense fire. That biblical picture of judgment that will scour off every last remnant of the filth of her lies. The city. How long will God allow this judgment to last? Verse 13. He says, I have purged thee, and thou wast not purged. Thou shalt not be purged from thy filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest upon thee. God says, I will continue to purge, and you will not, be, you will not find rest until the day that, that my fury 
finds rest. He says in verse 14, I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not repent. God says this is what's going to happen. Point of no return. See, in the ninth day of the tenth month of the year 588 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar decided that he was going to destroy Jerusalem. God would use King Nebuchadnezzar to become a visible manifestation of the fury of God against the sin of His people. And God says, you're past the point of no return. It's going to happen now. I've given you a chance to repent and you did not. Now it's time for judgment. Everything changes in verse 15. And the focus of our message is going to be upon the second half of this verse. I've preached on on the judgment upon Jerusalem. I've preached how we can apply that to our lives. But there's something very dramatic that happens in the second half of this chapter. I'm going to read it all together. And then we'll talk about it. Beginning in verse 15. Also the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from thee the desire of thine eyes with a stroke. Yet neither shalt thou mourn nor weep, neither shalt thy tears run down. Forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead. Bind the tire of thine head upon thee, and put on thy shoes upon thy feet, and cover not thy lips, and eat not the bread of men. So I spake unto the people in the morning, and at even my wife died. And I did in the morning as I was commanded. And the people said unto me, Wilt thou not tell us what these things are to us, that thou doest so? Then I answered them, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Speak unto the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the excellency of your strength, the desire of your eyes, and that which your soul pitieth. And your sons and your daughters whom ye have left shall fall by the sword, and ye shall do as I have done. Ye shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. And your tires shall be upon your heads and your shoes upon your feet. Ye shall not mourn nor weep, but ye shall pine away from, for your iniquities and mourn one toward another. Thus Ezekiel is unto you a sign according to all that he hath done shall ye do. And when this cometh, ye shall know that I am the Lord God. Also thou son of man, shall it not be in the day when I take from them their strength the joy of their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that whereupon they set their minds, their sons and their daughters, that he that escapeth in that day shall come unto thee and cause thee to hear it with thine ears. In that day shall thy mouth be opened to him which is escaped, and thou shalt speak and be no more dumb, and thou shalt be a sign unto them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. In verse 16, God says that He is going to take away from Ezekiel the desire of His eyes. Perhaps to this point in the chapter, perhaps to this point in the book of Ezekiel, there's been an element of righteous indignation in you that has welled up, that has um, been angry at the blind and willful wickedness of the nation of Israel. This rebellious people and, and almost the satisfaction that they would be judged. But God is about to do something very drastic to impress upon the hearts of Israel the depth of their depravity, their distance from God, and the degree to which their sorrow and their mourning will be realized on the day that Jerusalem is destroyed. 
So in the night vision, Ezekiel was told by God this first half of this prophecy in verse 24, and then he was told a second thing. Ezekiel, tonight your wife is going to die. And you may not mourn her. You are going to wake up in the morning. Your wife will be dead. You will get up as you always do. You will get dressed as you always do. And you will carry about your day as you always do. There will be no external mourning. No one will see you with your clothes rent or your beard shaved or ashes upon your head. Your grief must be entirely internal. And verse 18 says that even his wife died. In the morning, Ezekiel shared the words of the Lord as he was commanded to. You know, all throughout the book of Ezekiel, God has been asking him to do strange things, has he not? Been asking him really to make himself a laughing stock in the eyes of the people. Asking him to lie on his side for several hundred days. Asking him to eat defiled meat and bread. Seeing strange visions carried off to Jerusalem. And throughout, one of the main reasons that Ezekiel has done these things is so that the people would look at him and see what he was doing and ask why. And then Ezekiel's actions would become a visible manifestation of the people. Recall him sneaking out in the middle of the night and digging under the wall. A visible manifestation of what the king of, of, of Jerusalem would do on the day that Babylon invaded. Laying on his side a visible manifestation of the invasion itself. Shaving off all of his hair and chopping it up into pieces and burning it and doing all these crazy things. Visible manifestation of all that Ezekiel was, or of all that Israel would go through. But this, this was the most dramatic thing, the most drastic thing God had ever asked him to do. His wife just died and he's not mourning. Now, no doubt there was anguish on his face. No doubt in, inside he was greatly torn. But it was not expressed in any physical way. Not only would this particular circumstance bring about a, a, a dramatic picture, but the only question going through the, the mind of those that were surrounding Ezekiel must have been this. Ezekiel, why? Why are you not mourning for your wife? That's what verse 19 says. They ask, wilt thou not tell us what these things are to us that thou doest so? How is it that your wife just died and you're not mourning? How is it that you're not sorrowful visibly over what just happened? What could this horrible event possibly mean? Well, God explains it in verses 20 to 23. This message is not for those in Jerusalem as many other messages have been. 
This message is for those that are in Babylon. This message is for the captivity. And the message was this. God tells them, I am going to take away the desire of your eyes. See, they were all in Babylon. But their minds were upon Jerusalem. It had been nine years since they'd seen the great city. They loved Jerusalem. They loved the temple. It was their heritage. They were a very proud people. This was their city. And not only that, but many of their loved ones were back there still. Their daughters. Their sons. They were still there in the city of Jerusalem. And God tells them, this city that you love, the desire of your eyes, the sanctuary of the temple of Solomon, will be profaned. That their sons and their daughters, all of whom were still in the city of Jerusalem, would be killed. But just like Ezekiel, God tells them that they will not be able to weep in the day of destruction. You know, perhaps the only thing that is, could make a day of great loss worse is if for some reason you are not able to weep over it. The only thing that makes loss worse is when you're not able to visibly manifest the emotions that are tied to that loss the times where you have to be strong for someone else. And so though you're hurting on the inside, you somehow have to keep it together for some other reason. The day that Jerusalem would be destroyed would be a day of rejoicing in Babylon. The great Babylonian military has finished another conquest in the name of our King. And yet all of those that had lived in that city of conquest would be tormented. They couldn't, re- they couldn't weep outwardly because they were in Babylon, the very place that was rejoicing over the destruction of the city. They couldn't weep. And yet they would be devastated. The city would rejoice and they would suffer in silence, mourning only in the privacy of their Jewish community. And so verse 24 says, Ezekiel is unto you a sign. The death of Ezekiel's wife became the visible manifestation of the destruction of Jerusalem. In verse 25, God promises both Ezekiel and the people that the day of Jerusalem that the day in which Jerusalem falls, Ezekiel would receive something. He would receive his voice again. It's been almost five years since Ezekiel has been able to speak. It's been almost five years since the last time Ezekiel, under his own discretion, was able to open his mouth. The only time he's allowed to speak is when the Lord is speaking through him. For five years now he has been dumb. Yet another sacrifice of the great prophet in the name of the Lord. It would be another two years before the city would fall. total of seven years that Ezekiel would be unable to speak. And when the people saw Ezekiel speak again, they would again realize not just that their city had fallen because God says on the day Ezekiel can speak, know that your city has fallen. 
So they were all dreading the day Ezekiel would be able to speak. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel was probably dreading the day he would be able to speak. And yet, this would also be the day that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what God had said was true and that they should have repented. And that they were indeed living in rebellion against Almighty God. And on that day, verse 27 says, they would know He's the Lord. We've talked about the judgment this evening. I want to go in a different direction. As we apply, I want to ask a question. And that question is why? What is it that we take from such an account this evening? We've heard many times of God's judgment for sin. We know that God judges sin. We know that sin has consequences. We know that God sees and we know that God knows. We know that we don't get away with things. We've learned these lessons by God's grace. But Ezekiel had done everything God had asked him to do. Ezekiel had given up his reputation. He'd given up his ability to speak. He'd given up a year of his life laying on his side. He'd given up those things that we as as typical human beings would say would be his freedoms, his abilities, in order to be a visible manifestation of the judgment of God to his people. He'd been obedient through very difficult circumstances. And now on top of all of these things, God takes away the desire of his eyes. God takes away his wife. And God didn't say, enjoy the next six weeks with her. Or, it'll be a year that you have with her. God said, tonight your wife will die. You may not mourn. And so I'd like us to think about this event together from two perspectives. First, I'd like us to think about this event from God's perspective and then from Ezekiel's perspective. And as we do so, we will have the privilege of applying these circumstances to our own lives. I began the sermon this evening by asking you, what would happen if you had a Job moment? I can't even imagine a Job moment. I've tried before. I've tried to imagine a circumstance where everything that I hold dear is taken from me in a moment. And what I would do on that day and how I would respond and how I ought to respond. But it really is unimaginable, isn't it? We really can't fathom unless we've gone through it. I know some of us in this room have suffered loss. You've gone through difficult circumstances. You can perhaps understand a little bit of what Ezekiel is going through here. And so we try to reconcile what God has asked Ezekiel to do with who we know God to be. And as we do so, the reconciliation of God's goodness and, God and man's suffering is a theological term known as theodicy. We talked about this when we were in Job. That was a, a good year now since we've been in Job. The idea is that even though God allows bad things to happen to man, and even though God allows men to suffer, yet God is still a good God. Now, we know foundationally that suffering is not God's fault. Suffering is man's fault. 
Suffering is a result of sin. And sin is a result of the curse. And a curse is a result of man's rebellion. And so Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this, tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And so we have all sinned, and death came upon the world through sin, and sin came upon the world through the rebellion of man. So we cannot blame God for the suffering of man. You cannot blame God when you get sick. You cannot blame God when your loved one dies. You cannot blame God when all that you have or love or hold dear or your possessions are taken away from you because this is not a result of God. This is a result of man and his sin and his rebellion against God. And yet we see in circumstances like this one that God is allowing Ezekiel's wife to die prematurely as a sign. We see something a bit deeper than simply death and suffering here. We see God taking the life of a man's wife, then commanding him not to outwardly mourn for her as a means of making a point to a rebellious people whose opportunity for mercy was over and whose judgment was now assured. And we wonder, there must have been a better way. We wonder, how could God do such a thing to a man who had so faithfully served him and given up so much for him? Now, this teaching is only going to make sense to those in this room who are believers. I believe the majority of us are. The world around us will hear the testimony of the Word of God concerning God's actions and they will call Him a bully or unfair or selfish. But we see a sovereign God dealing in sovereign actions. And we recognize God to be perfectly within His right as Creator, Redeemer, and King to take from us what He has first given to us. You see, Ezekiel could speak because God had in His goodness given Ezekiel the ability to speak. Ezekiel was alive because God in His goodness had given Ezekiel life. And Ezekiel had a wife and his wife was alive because of the goodness upon God. And if God has given us that which is according to His goodness, is He not entitled to take it away as well? So I'd like us to consider several passages. I'm going to have you turn with me in your Bibles to these passages. Several passages that will give us an understanding of the God that we serve. Job chapter 38 first, please. We were in Job about a year ago. Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. So if you find that big old chunk of Psalms, just go back a little bit. And let's read verses 12 through 24. Please follow along as I'll read. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Job chapter 38, beginning in verse 12. God says, Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days and caused the day spring to know his place, that it may take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it? It is turned as clay to the seal, and they that stand as a garment. And from the wicked their light is withholden, and the high arm shall be broken. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea, or hast thou walked... In search of the depth? Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Hast thou perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare if thou knowest it all. Where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? That thou shouldst take it to the bound thereof. And that thou shouldst know the paths to the house thereof. 
Knowest thou it because thou wast then born? Or because the number of thy days is great? Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow? Or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war? By what way is the light parted which scattereth the east wind upon the earth? The questions God asks are these. Who made the world? And who made all that is in the world? See, if we recognize that God is the maker of all things, if we understand how little we truly know in comparison to all that God is and all that God knows, we begin to gain the wisdom that we need to understand how God deals with us in this world. We begin to gain the wisdom of not understanding His dealings, but understanding the God behind the dealings. Do you understand the difference? Circumstances arise. I may never understand those circumstances. Do I understand why God has allowed me to go through the things that I've gone through? Do I understand why God brought about the circumstances He brought about? Do I understand why I have these difficulties in my life? Maybe not. But do I understand the God that gave them to me? Yes. And that's what matters. Is that we understand the God that brought, that allowed these circumstances to come into my life. Because when I understand who God is and how much more He knows than I know, and how much greater He is than I am, and how much He loves me, then I don't need to necessarily understand why things are happening as long as I understand that God is in control. And that He knows. And that He loves me. Turn with me please to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, God is explaining how it is that God has set Israel aside and is now working through the church. This passage does not deal with salvation. It has to do with election. The reality that God has elected us as believers to serve Him and to glorify Him in the same way He had elected Israel as a nation to serve Him and to glorify Him. So that's very important to understand. Begin reading with me in verse 14. Paul writing, he says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Again, I remind you, this is not salvation. This is God's purposes through election that he's speaking of here. And... This is really the heart of the issue as we consider God's choice to take Ezekiel's wife. That God, in His purpose, 
is completely justified in doing what He deems necessary to further His purposes upon this earth. He's absolutely entitled because He is absolutely worthy. Does the pot say to the potter who made it, um, wait a minute, you made me a kettle and I wanted to be a salt shaker. You made a mistake here, potter. What would the potter say? No, I didn't make a mistake. I made you what I wanted to make you. For you to be what I wanted you to be. When Dr. Stelzer was here almost a year ago for our chartering and for my ordination, he's a potter by trade. And he brought me a salt and a pepper shaker that he had made, that he had actually made by hand and, and uh, had formed. And, and uh, he gave me those as an ordination gift. Now, if the salt shaker had looked at Dr. Stelzer in the day it was made and said, hey, look, I'm the pepper shaker. He's supposed to be the salt shaker. Number one, of course, if he was speaking, that might have been a little bit strange for Dr. Stelzer. But if, if the clay is telling the potter, you made a mistake, the potter is going to look at the clay and say, no, I own you. I created you. I created you the way I created you for a purpose This is the purpose I made you for. Don't tell me that I've made a mistake because you don't understand. Each one of us are pots in God's hand. Now, by God's grace, He's given every man the opportunity to reject or accept salvation. That's not what Romans is talking about here. Romans is talking about the purpose whereby God created you. Ezekiel was created to be a vessel particularly fitted to deliver this message to the nation of Israel over, by the time we're finished with his ministry, 27 years. Ezekiel had no right to look at God and say, God, you made me a vessel unto suffering and I was supposed to be a vessel unto luxury. God, you made me the prophet that had to go through all of these crazy signs. I was supposed to be the prophet that the king honored. Ezekiel couldn't do that because Ezekiel wasn't the potter. God was the potter. And Ezekiel recognized that he was just the clay and that God was forming him to be what God had called him to be. Paul's rebuke in Romans 9 serves to remind us of the folly of trying to impose human understanding upon God's actions. We cannot fully know why God chose to take Ezekiel's wife We cannot understand fully why God didn't choose another way. But we do understand the God that chose to do this. And that God is the God of Ezekiel 34, verse 6. And the Lord passed by before Moses, him, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. We don't necessarily know why it was that Ezekiel became that pot that had to be filled up with the difficulty of of this ministry. But this is what God had called him to do. And do you understand the peace and the contentment that comes with that? I, as your pastor, could spend my days in my office wondering why it is that God has shaped me to be the pastor of 30 instead of the pastor of 3,000. I could wonder why it is I'm on the bus 
or on, in a van, as the case may be, in the morning working a bivocational job instead of being a pastor that not only has a full uh, paycheck but also has a health care plan and a retirement plan and for good measure somebody in the church decided to give me a car for Christmas one year. I could wonder why it is I'm not that pastor. But you know what? I'm not that pastor because that's not the pastor God has made me. It's fruitless for me to wonder why it is God hasn't made me thus. Because God has made me this. It's fruitless for me to wonder why God took away what I loved because God has formed that for me. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. This will be our last passage we go to and then we'll look at this from Ezekiel's perspective, which we've kind of been doing anyway. But we'll make it a little bit clearer. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and meted out the heavens with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being His counselor, hath taught Him? With whom took He counsel? And who instructed Him? And taught Him in the path of judgment? And taught Him knowledge? And showed to Him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, He taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. Drop down with me to verse 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of His understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We don't always know where God leads, but we can know this, that where God leads, He provides. That when God takes us into the dark valley, that He will also hide us in the cleft of the rock as we sang this evening. God is not a man whose actions are to be the object of debate. God's actions today will not become the object of our debate as to whether those actions were valid or not tomorrow morning. God does not stand to our analysis or against our scrutiny. God's actions are not subject to our analysis. They are subject only to our submission. And this brings us to the man Ezekiel. We've asked why from God's perspective and we've answered that. We've also talked a little bit about our perspective. God's actions are beyond our skepticism. If the Bible says God is good, and it does, then... God is good. If the Bible says God loves us and it does, then God loves us. If the Bible says God is in control and it does, then God is in control. 
And it says that God's way is perfect. And so His way is perfect. That brings us to Ezekiel. It's always easier to reconcile ourselves to God's will in the midst of suffering when that suffering is not happening to us. But what was going through Ezekiel's mind as this suffering was happening to him? Well, of course, we don't really know what was going through Ezekiel's mind because he doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that he greatly loved his wife. So much so that God called Ezekiel's wife the desire of his eyes. We do know how we would feel if the Lord took from us our spouse or a child or a parent when it seems as though it was not their time to go. But we also know that Ezekiel was a man of unusual godliness and submission. And so though we cannot fully know what he was thinking, perhaps we can piece together the perspective of other godly men and that would help us to apply this this evening. Job tells us a little bit about what was in his mind after he lost his children and all of his worldly possessions. His wife tells Job, do you still maintain your cause before the Lord? Just curse God and die. And Job says this in Job chapter 2, verse 10. He tells his wife, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? Job's body is under attack. Job's children are dead. And Job tells us this. When we understand who God is and we understand who we are in light of who God is, our perspective on things in life totally changes. Even those things which we love and hold dear, our families, our friends, the fruit of our labor, our hard work, see, they're gods. Your family is gods. Your children are gods. Your parents are gods. And if I am going to honor God with my possessions, it means I don't just honor Him with my gain. It means I also honor Him with my loss. I don't just glorify God in the good times. I glorify God in the bad times. It's not easy, but it's an outworking of a proper understanding of who God is. But even more than just the suffering of life, Ezekiel was experiencing the suffering of ministry. Ezekiel did not only rest in the fact that God's will was done, but he also faced the reality that through his personal suffering and sacrifice, God's Word was proclaimed to others. May it just be that through God taking that from you, that loved one, or that possession, or your health, you might have the opportunity to glorify God in a way that you could never otherwise glorify God. You might learn lessons about God that would grow you in your faith in a way that you would never be grown before. That God might just be molding that pot in a way that you could not be molded outside of the suffering that you're about to endure. This was the consolation of Paul throughout the New Testament. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, I, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my, bo- in my flesh for His body's sake, 
which is the church. Paul rejoiced in his physical suffering because in his physical suffering he was able to manifest the glory of God. Isn't that regularly what we pray here at Legacy Baptist Church? That God would heal people in the midst of their suffering, but that even if God in His wisdom chose not to heal that particular person that we're praying for, that perhaps God in His goodness would use this circumstance to glorify Himself and to reveal Himself to those who are going through these circumstances. We pray that prayer because that's what God desires to do in us. And that's what God is doing in us. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-11, through 11, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. If I could die so that others could see the life of Christ, would it be worth it? If my death would facilitate the salvation of someone else, would it not be worth it? If the sufferings of this present life brought about greater glory to God and an abundance of spiritual fruit into God's kingdom, would it not be worth it? This was Paul's perspective. That Paul's greatest desire was that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be made manifest in him and through him regardless of what this meant to him personally. Paul would say in Acts 20.24, None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. I don't count my life as dear as long as I can finish my life having glorified God to the fullest. That is a perspective. And as we sit here this evening wondering about Ezekiel, I believe this was what was going through Ezekiel's mind. That if by my life and my suffering and my death or my wife's death, the glory of God might be manifest through me, well then God, here am I. Use me. Send me. And he's not the only one. Hebrews 11 is filled with the accounts of men and women whose faith convinced them that the temporal and physical things of this life were worth giving up for the eternal weight and glory of Almighty God. So Hebrews 11 verses 37 and 38 tells us, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. And notice how God describes them. They were those of whom the world was not worthy. The world was not worthy of these men and women, but God had them here for however long in order that their suffering and their death could declare the glory of God to a lost and dying world. And so 1 Peter 4, verses 13 and 14 tells us, 12-14, through 14, excuse me. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part He is evil spoken of, 
but on your part he is glorified. The world was not worthy of them. And if you are willing to allow the cup of suffering to fill up in your life according to God's good pleasure, then the same would be said of you. As we finish this evening, coming back to Ezekiel's perspective, the question why should begin to fade in our minds, shouldn't it? Ezekiel knew full well what the Bible declares that God is worthy and that any degree of physical suffering we may experience for the glory of God is absolutely worthy of that sacrifice. We are God's and God is worthy. And as we close, I'd like you to consider your own heart this evening. Do you have pieces of your life that you have not given to God? If God were to take your spouse, your children, would you be able to say with Job, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. If God were to ask you for the greatest sacrifice as He asked for Ezekiel, in order that His message might be proclaimed, would you be willing to make that sacrifice? You know, next week is missions conference. We're going to hear about men and women who have given up what they might have had in this life to pursue a different life. We're going to have in our minds the testimony of men and women who have gone so far as to give up their very lives to reach lost souls for Christ. What a tremendous message to have the week before missions conference so that we can begin to frame our mindset around the reality that God might just call someone in this room to go. If God looked in your direction and said, go, go to the deepest and darkest part of this world and preach the gospel to a group of people that have, want nothing to do with you, is your heart ready to say, here am I, send me? If God asked you to go to Nowheresville and to spend your entire life there ministering in a church for God's glory, would you go? Here am I, send me. It doesn't mean God's going to ask it of you. God may not take your health. He may not take your life. He may not take the lives of your loved ones. He may not take your possessions. He may not take everything that you have held on to. But if He does, is it His? For His glory? Or do we draw a line somewhere? Well, God, I'll talk to my neighbors, but don't ask me to go out of this nation. I'll go across the state, even across the country, but I'm not going to be a missionary. You can have my investments, but don't touch my bank account. You can have my Sundays, but don't touch the rest of my week. Is there a limit to your willingness to sacrifice for God. May I encourage you this evening to follow in the footsteps of those who have gone before. To be like an Ezekiel who was so submitted to God that whatever God asked him was, was God's. He could have it. May I encourage you to have a heart that would be willing to give anything. Simply put, as redeemed born-again believers, it's our reasonable service. And anything less than all that we have is insufficient.
Let's pray together.